today on Tea and Teaching. In the same way as we would look for many, many years and say that we could see a real difference to the language acquisition of a child in their early years based on what experience and exposure they have to, to language in, in, in their home setting. I would argue the same applies when it comes to digital skills and the access they get to digital um, tools, guidance and resources both in home and in school because that experience can be quite different on their school journey. We always have this balance, particularly at the moment, I think, where we've had this we've had this digital overload for a couple of years. And I think whilst there's a real potential now as the technologies are moving on, there's also a lot of other pressures. And that, that teacher cup, you know, the glass is full. You've got to tip something out before you try to do more things in. And it's capacity rather than will or intent that's the challenge here. I think if you use it with purpose, and, that's, and it doesn't matter how simple or complicated the technology is, it's all about purpose and whether it's really there to add value or not. Welcome to Tea and Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to with a cup of tea. I'm Arthur Moore, and with me, as always, it's Mike Harrowell. Hi, Mike. Hello, Arthur Moore. How are you? Oh, I'm, do you know what? I'm really good, buddy. Uh, how about you? How are you? Yeah, looking forward to learning about technology in schools with Al Kingsley. What an awesome guest, Mike. And did you know he was uh, given the award of Edu Futurist of the Year in 2013? So who better to talk about tech in our schools, in our classrooms and in our education system? So everyone else, go put on the kettle, get a cup of tea, get some biscuits if you're going for a walk, get the shoes on. If you're sitting down, get ready, because we're going to be talking to Al Kingsley all about ed tech, and we're going to be talking about digital poverty and how we build those skills that we all need. Let's do it. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. We are joined today by Al Kingsley. Al, welcome to Tea and Teaching. Hello, hello. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's our absolute pleasure. For anyone listening to the pod who maybe doesn't know of Al AI Kingsley, do you want to give us a quick intro into who you are? Well, I need to remind myself sometimes. Um, a very, a very brief one is I often use as a man of two hats. So um I'm 30 plus years into the EdTech space, EdTech CEO, developing hopefully innovative and purposeful solutions for schools. The other half of my life, um, 20 years in school and Mac governance, I'm chair of a multi-academy trust, an AP academy. Uh, I sit on the regional schools directors board for the East of England, supporting the academy's program. Uh, digital poverty ambassador, uh, I'm chair of our regional SEND board. So anything education and learning and any age, any stage, I'm up for it. And where technology can help be a lever to support that, then all the better. Which is perfect because today uh, we're going to start our conversation talking all about uh, digital poverty. So as we move into more and more ed tech world, Mike, we've done quite a few pods now about ed tech, but something we haven't spoken really properly about in detail is digital poverty. So, Al, before we start talking about that, do you want to give us kind of your definition, how you see digital poverty before we start talking about the nuance of it all? I'm happy to, but I'll probably start with the first of a few hundred confessions. I keep changing my definition. 
and because up until perhaps not that long ago i i would always put the digital poverty into the kind of umbrella of anybody who lives with limited or no access to internet and digital technologies in some shape and form but i think when we think about what's happened the last few years not just as a result of the pandemic but in terms of a change in the workplace i think somewhere along the line we've got us we've got to squeeze into that definition skills digital skills because so i think digital poverty isn't just about access to the technology it's access to the understanding of how to utilize it um i'm very much spent many years focused on place-based considerations and the opportunities for children that sometimes can be quite limited based on where they where they uh, they are geographically in the country um, and now we see the ability for a, for a child anywhere in the country to have the potential to go and work anywhere in the world digitally. Um, but that doesn't just require a connection. It requires the understanding and skills to go with it. So it's kind of someone who's got very limited or no access to the Internet or digital technologies or the appropriate skills and experience to have a, a level playing field. So it's about accessing the technology not because i don't have a computer at home but because maybe i don't have as you said the skills i've been trained to kind of access how to get onto teams or how to get onto the the yeah. one drive or the z drive well, i think it's got further than that now hasn't it i mean in the same way as we would look for many many years and say that we could see a real difference to the language acquisition of a child in their early years based on what experience and exposure they have to, to language in 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 their home setting I would argue the same applies when it comes to digital skills and the access they get to digital um, tools, guidance and resources, both in home and in school, because that experience can be quite different on their school journey. Uh, and when we think how much now, you know, the, some of the, the conversations that are, tend to um, hog the airwaves at the moment about the use of artificial intelligence and how we can leverage these up to be more efficient and to access greater information. Well, we all know that that the key to utilize those technologies once you know that they exist and how to access them is all about things like effective questioning and how to actually have the, the understanding to to evidence and challenge the quality of that information how do you authenticate it how do you refine it so i think digital skills digital citizenship which goes hand in hand for me always will do if you're going to empower young people well frankly of any age to use digital technology you've got to be mindful of how you keep yourself safe protected and sometimes just the way you conduct yourself online, which is another challenge we always have to face with our learners. So, you know, they all, they're all wrapped together, but I, I kind of feel it's, it's no difference to, um, you know, we wouldn't turn around and say, if you own a car, that gives you the capacity to travel if you've not had a driving test or had any kind of understanding of how to maintain that vehicle. And that may be a bit of a clumsy um, comparison, but I think the same applies with digital. You know, I can think of many adults that get handed a laptop and would do very little apart from solitaire and the odd email. Well, that doesn't mean that they're digitally sound or able to really maximize their potential with the technology. And as we move more and more in kind of as tech, well, I think us teachers, us educators, we're using this more and more. I know Mike, you're doing more and more tech in what you're doing. Do you think we're putting enough emphasis and conversation about digital poverty and the policies as educators we can do to kind of move it? Is the conversation about digital poverty moving with the tech conversation at the same speed? No, no, unfortunately it's not. I mean, there's some great organisations, Digital Poverty Alliance and others are trying to do something. 
Uh, I mean, I think we've got we've had one journey where we've had if we if we roll back three years ago, we had a journey about was there sufficient technology in schools to allow us to mitigate a short term you know hiatus in 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 learning, and we had a sudden surge of devices into schools. Um, and during that time, good schools were thinking of how do we mitigate for some of our cohort, whether it was connectivity dongles being shipped out to homes. Um, we were not just thinking about devices, but it's about, you know, the, we've got three children with one device. Well, that's not going to give them equity of access when it comes to to learning and revision and study and so on. But as as always is the case, as as the pandemic has subsided and we've been probably, not probably, definitely for the right reasons, focused on probably more things around SCMH and how we get our, our children back into that learning space and getting actually some of our learners back into school. Those kind of challenges, I think, have, have, have probably trumped the consideration of how much time and effort we're putting into um, kind of keeping that that digital divide as, as close as we can. And I might argue that, you know, when we talk about all this new great technology and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about some of the other technologies that, you know, the extended reality, Web 3.0, the metaverse, all those things. Everyone gets quite excited that these are amazing things that unlock potential for learning. And we, you know, there's lots of considerations about data and safety, but actually, the, they also have the ability to broaden the digital divide. That that not, the, the haves and have-nots, the access to the right headsets, the access to high-speed connectivity. So for every opportunity, there's that need to kind of just pause and make sure that we don't rely on technology within our teaching and learning and our experiences for our learners. That actually unintentionally broadens the digital divide yeah absolutely hear what you're saying there Al. i'm just wondering in terms of your role and the involvement you have with digital poverty and education are you aware of is there a significant um achievement gap in students who experience digital poverty or is it just an area that hasn't been explored enough to kind of give us a definitive answer in terms of what disadvantage those students are at I, I think that's a really, really good question. And I, I would I would put the argument on the case that there isn't specific research that highlights that. I think what tends to happen is we tend to group together um, the, the, the conversation around children that have lack, lack of access to technology at home within the broader umbrella of lack of parental engagement, lack of support and focus, um, you know, non-engaged learners and all sorts of other variables that go together. And it's really, really hard to measure it. I mean, in many regards, the, the gap often is more exaggerated with our primary learners because we know where there's a lack of parental engagement for our primary learners. It can have a much more obvious or, or significant impact on that early years and key stage one learning process because they require the parental engagement to really get the most out of any kind of remote learning. I think as we get, as the children get older, it becomes much harder. You know, and this is the point where I'm sure there'll be people saying, well, you know what, where's the evidence that homework has an impact? You know, and, and we can go down all sorts of different pathways. But what we have seen is um, this this idea perhaps that technology replaces teaching and learning or, or somehow magically kind of adds an extra tick. I've always taken the view that um, when we look at some of the technologies available now, the personalized learning pathways, whether it's uh, our, our maths and, and literacy skills or whether it's uh, our the kind of personalized learning tools that and there's some great ones now for stem subjects that really are about taking what's been learned at school and stretch and challenge uh, many are quite gamified in in some regards i think those <clears throat> excuse me those kind of pathways are really really 
important just to that to, to the, the the repetition and the embedding of, of good knowledge and uh, for, for children um and you know and i often flip around with different examples one of my other roles is um i've spent three years i was asked to step in to become a chair of an alternative provision academy supporting some of them our most vulnerable and challenging learners within the city um and we found that actually technology was a really really effective way to get learner engagement perhaps in some cases because it didn't feel quite like learning in a, such a formalized and structured way um, but we've also seen some big strides in the way that we can use technology particularly year six year seven transitions where we have learners going into year seven that aren't quite ready for full year seven secondary experience and they will have a, a, a reduced timetable often still in one classroom with a with a teacher that's taking them through all those subjects so we would see things like um maybe we'll, we'll be talking and introducing shakespeare to our year sevens at a very light level but in our in our support and nurture group we would be using minecraft to start creating the globe theater and start creating the space and talking about the why it's laid out that way and, and how things happen there and so the sort of technology that we then start introducing we're always thinking well what, is that going to be accessible to the child outside of school will it allow them to foster and further develop their interest in something um, and that's where this kind of this this challenge comes that we want to choose technology that will provide different ways to stimulate learners in school we want to find ways that will add interest and engagement across the curriculum everything has to be evidence informed it's got to be for purpose not for fun i mean fun is cool but it's not going to help when it comes to the ultimate objectives um, and, and i think that's where this 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 challenge of actually when we think about the technology that's right for our school we should actually be thinking of not just the school devices so a lot that i see now in in mats that i um, support with their digital strategies will be thinking well we don't want technology that just works across our uh, windows devices and chromebooks but we're actually looking at some curriculum resources that we know will also work on on mobile phones because then being device agnostic we know that, that can be leveraged by what is probably the one common denominator for technology for our students and, and that doesn't mean we're using mobiles in our classroom but it does mean that we can choose to unlock that and allow a child to have access it in a different setting so as a school leader how how do i go about ascertaining whether my students and their households are ready for the tech i want to buy like i know some you just send home a form are you ready for this do you yeah. have the tech yes or no but i feel like there should be more no, I think, well, I mean, it's a start, isn't it? And and sometimes, you know, we always have this balance, particularly at the moment, I think, where we've had this, we've had this digital overload for a couple of years. And I think whilst there's a real potential now as the technologies are moving on, that there's also a lot of other pressures and that, that teacher cup, you know, the glass is full and you've got to tip something out before you try tipping more things in and it's capacity rather than will or intent that's the challenge here. I mean, fundamentally, when we talk about digital strategies, people immediately think, well, it's the techies in the room. So, you know, this, is, this isn't a conversation for me, for example. And, and, there, and of course, it isn't quite the opposite. And I would argue a digital strategy is, is at the heart is about teachers and students. What are we trying to achieve? Why do we want to make changes? Where are the areas that align with our school development plan? Um, and often that digital strategy starts with identifying what the key pillars are that you want to address with the utilization or the better adoption of technology. Um, maybe that sounds a bit bit woolly, but let's take the kind of the, the key pillars. 
that there's really one person that's all knowing in all aspects of digital and pedagogy that can handle all aspects of that conversation. So typically you could have one which will be about developing students' digital skills. There'll be a pillar about teachers' digital skills, a pillar maybe about introducing innovation in the classroom. There'll be one that will be uh, data protection and privacy and cybersecurity. There'll be one that'll be about communications and hopefully there'll be one that might be about things like well-being and support for our both staff and, and learners. So when we think about students' digital skills, we then start down the path of, first and foremost, let's get rid of the sort of the slightly dated children of digital natives so they can just work tech. Well, yeah, they can work tech with confidence. It doesn't mean they can use the tools that the school's choosing for the curriculum effectively and with purpose. Um, so you you can survey your children about what, what their level of confidence is. You can engage with parents. Many schools will will actually encourage in the early years cohort um, sessions where parents are invited to come into school and actually have a session where they can see the technology that's being used. Maybe it's the, the, the core platforms that the children are going to be used to communicate with the school, submit homework. So whether you're a, you know, a Microsoft school and you're looking at how they're going to use Teams and OneNote or you're a Google school, you know, and all, all flavors are fine with me. Um, but actually that process of getting parents involved tends to be the catalyst that then you get lots of questions being asked. It gives you the opportunity to say, you know what, as educators in our school, we're all very clear on how we share content and we create nice exemplars that we will give for our students on best practice. Perhaps we should do the same for our parents. Maybe we should actually be creating some resources for them. That feedback gives us the litmus test. And then in parallel, we're doing the exact same process with our teachers. Why do we assume that every amazing educator, whatever their subject knowledge is, is all going to be on the exact position, the same start line when it comes to their digital confidence? Why do we assume that technology will have the same impact in every subject with every cohort? You know, Some of the best classes involve no technology at all, but also some of the best ones can be amazing if they're underpinned with technology. So doing the same thing with staff, um, again, I think it's about setting expectations. There's no point saying, what are you confident with if people feel that they're going to be judged if they say, you know what, I really don't know how to do that. Um, so the things that I always say is get that kind of litmus test of where everybody is as staff, build your CPD around that and budget pressures and time are a problem, but it's the C that's key. It's not a couple of hours inset, start the academic year, but it's continuous professional development. How do we make time to do that? Some schools will have stand-ups, teach meets and all sorts where they'll just share five minute top tips that the different ways teachers have discovered to do things. Uh, the biggest simple one, all about building our digital confidence, is, um, you know, in most schools, if you say, who's the head of a department, or do you know the contact number for a department or a school within your map, people can turn to a document and find it. If I say, who's the go-to? Who's the flag bearers for OneNote? Who's the flag bearers for Teams? Who are the people, the staff, that are innovating at the moment with any AI tools? Who are the best staff for X, Y, and Z? People won't always know, and actually... By having that conversation and knowing who's really got strength and confidence, it means the next time you decide that you want to take a, a stretch and you want to try chat GPT or BARD or whatever it may be and have a look at how that might speed up lesson planning and preparation for you, you've got the confidence of knowing there's two or three people that you could reach out to and say, have you got any templates? Have you got any good lists of effective questioning resources? Mike, what are you the flag bearer for? What do people come to you? What do people knock on Mike Howell's door demanding help with? Based on the we... wallpaper, it's got to be tea, isn't it? Surely a cup of tea, though, looks a bit. <laughs> well, tea and teaching, funnily enough. Um, 
plug. Do you know, interesting listening to you there is we, we've recently moved online for all of our homework. Um, so we've done away with our physical student planners and everything's set through uh, an app that the parents have and then a multiple kind of magnitude of online learning platforms, whichever departments kind of feel suits their needs the best. And a, a big step that maybe I underestimated in leading that was training the parents and giving the parents confidence to be able to log on with their child or log on as their child and say, what have you got? How are you doing it? What support do you need? Because what it did, it took it away from being a physical book that a parent could check every day, every week, however often they wanted to do it and have a conversation with their child about what schools. And it hid that all the way behind a screen, behind a, a login. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really interesting experience this year, actually, of how quickly we had to put on parent workshops, how we've had to change some of our communication routes with parents. So um, opening up. Um, yeah. Uh, IT help to the parents so they can go on our website, click a button and go straight to our IT support instead of going through a form tutor or ahead of year and, and creating this like a drawn out process that if they need their child's password reset, it can just get reset within minutes during the school day if that person's available and, and working on that. So yeah, I absolutely hear what you're saying there. It's sometimes it's the students are maybe skills rich and maybe um, confident but it's that support at home and it's that that triangle, isn't it? It's the, the school, the parent, the child and all working together symbiotically. Absolutely. And I think that was almost exaggerated in primary. You know, traditionally, primary parents are very much aware of having their content and their uh, termly journals. Go and, go and check the students' books, have a look at the photos, evidence of work. You know, and the photos were being taken by staff and TAs that were being cut out and put in the books that was actually required as part of that you know evidence of, of the child's you know strength and depth in their in their core skills and, and knowledge and so on and increasingly now schools have moved to digital journals well suddenly when it, your digital journal whatever the platform is that you're choosing again all, all good platforms are fine with me um you know parents sort of lost that well what's what's there's less in the book bag coming back now and I'm not getting it signposted in front of me so um, unless I'm really directed and given that confidence, I feel like I might be missing out on something, you know. And I think those those elements of of understanding that that ecosystem, you know, for someone who's a huge fan of ed tech, one of the things I always say as part of your digital strategy is less is more and less is chocolate, which basically is not don't have less technology, but introduce technology more slowly. Do a few things well, embed them, make sure all stakeholders have confidence in them. Confidence in using something will give you the evidence of impact. And that gives you then the next layer of confidence to build again. Often we try and do too many things at once and we're not quite sure which thing is breaking the loop, shall we say. It's that assumption as well, isn't it? Um, I remember during the pandemic, um, being months into it and some teachers at the school doing some really innovative online things. Thanks, Mike. And then a teacher just messaging me and saying, I need to speak to you. Like I've, I've done something amazing. Like, are you free for a call? And I took the call from the teacher and he said, I've just found out how to do that, this like Microsoft quiz on Teams. And I think it was one of the first ever CPDs we did. And it's just that assumption that all the staff are kind of moving at the same time in this, in terms of their confidence, their skills, as opposed to identifying who your early adopters are and really kind of investing in those and then using those to 
kind of spread that message and spread that skill across your staff and understand that there's going to be that group that are quite reluctant or quite slow adopters to this and they're going to need a total different type of support for it. I think you can also say this is why I'm, I'm, I'm rarely a fan of a kind of a national this is what we should be doing because you've got you've got a variability in your student cohort you've absolutely got a variability in your staff cohort and you'll have a variability in terms of your IT estate what the infrastructure is like in your schools and, and if you consider all three of those then the idea that every school should be expected to be on a similar point in a journey or arrive at the finish line at the same time is an absolute folly this is about identifying where your priorities are how you want to move forward those key items identified on your your school development plan and where appropriate how technology can be a lever now i would argue right now much as it would be probably prudent if i wear my dfe hat to say well of course our measure of success is attainment and progress right that's the that's the fundamental litmus test we apply to success in our learning journey well i don't agree i'd say right now you know the the bigger risks that we have and the measures of success are about can we utilize tools and technology that have a more positive impact on well-being whether that's support and structure connectivity to some of our more vulnerable learners what's the impact on teacher recruitment but most importantly on retention and so i'd say often actually the bigger more measurable driver in the short term with technology is how can it help save time efficiency free up teacher resource and capacity to do the the things that teachers are most impactful on with relationships and young people um, and then sometimes not every bit of technology is simply about there's an immediate correlation to academic pro- progression you know we talk about this digital ecosystem in the bigger space well you know some of our learners during the lockdown you know certainly our vulnerable learners were very much reliant on the face-to-face dialogue that they had with their teacher you know that particularly for our SEN children having that regular communication for some of our tools it's about the fact that actually this tool teams and again I I, I hasten to cover all all platforms but you know pre-pandemic most staff diplomatically and probably most workers in every office around the build around the country thought it was just an update on Skype it's just a messaging platform and then these this functionality evolved and now we've seen that schools have continued to develop and evolve it now have you know interdepartment channels that are live by curriculum subject across their mats we're kind of breaking down those silos we're not limited to one school we can have the you know the the mathematicians across the trust and all the schools sharing resources and talking about different aspects and that really removes that you know i'm, I'm on my own we're we're on it alone but we've actually got much more ability to share best practice but then what happens is we have these great ideas about how digital brings us together and then because there's always a sense of we want autonomy and every school likes to have it rightly its own sense of purpose and place its vision and values and autonomy you find that never twain to meet at leadership level so you say well we can now all share stuff well that's great but all the schools have chosen a different version of the tool to do the same task so now we can't share our cpd we can't share our resources or our training sessions because we've decided that the best way to engage with parents is for school a to use product a and school b to use product b and just imagine if we'd chosen to say you know what at primary we were going to use the same schemes of work for our curriculum and at secondary we were going to use the same tools or the same curriculum resources for science and for maths or whatever that we could we could actually start to share 
um, some of that. So, so lots of these things about how do we get the most out of the technology? It's not just the professional development, but it's also about leadership recognizing that to unlock the efforts and savings, you've got to stop thinking about just what sits directly below you, but look around you, depending on what kind of structure or cluster you're involved in with your schools. Yeah, it's taken that time to step back from the operational side of a school, isn't it? And look at yeah. the strategic implementation of technology and actually how you do that over a number of years, not just we want more computers in our schools. Well, what what do you want them for? How are you going to use them? How How is that going to improve outcomes for students? How is it going to improve workload for staff? It's a little um, bit like interactive whiteboards, Mike, isn't it, really? You can think <laughs> back over the years. And for every school that was using them with purpose, there was another that had just bought a very expensive mains-powered drawing surface. Um, and we could we could argue the same again in terms of some of the digital screens that are being used now. You know, now some are using them great, but there are so many schools um, that have gone down this pathway. One of the things I I, I wrote about in my first book on EdTech was that we tend to judge technology by the the, the failed projects. Um, and there are some big landmark ones like um, um, the Unified School District of Los Angeles that had a massive iPad rollout and they spent, frankly, millions. And it was one of the first big Apple supported iPad rollouts and, and how the project wasn't a success because they didn't get any real clear evidence of impact and the costs were high and they weren't managed. But fundamentally, when you look through the, the story of that, that project, and there are many others like that, um, it was the the most simplistic version of the SAMA model where they just got to substitution and stopped and said, right, we're going to take a sheet of paper and replace it with a screen and we're going to put an iPad in the hand of the child. And nobody thought about actually what's the intent. How are we going to use this to actually foster collaboration, make access to new technologies, new resources? How are we going to use it to, to bring bring students together across groups, across the school district? And frankly, how we're going to manage these devices, which often also gets forgotten as well, which is, you know, there's an assumption you press that little button and everything you want to use for this lesson's on it. Well, I find the number one thing that will drain colour quicker out of a teacher's face is the uh, that fear that when they when a cart of devices come in the room and they're going to use them for a lesson, that the kids are going to grab one each, hit power, and then the next 10 minutes going to be miss or sir this won't start that won't start this one's not got this displaying right and you think actually i guarantee what happens next week is that cart's coming nowhere near the classroom <laughs> thank you very much every teacher has that experience of the ipad trolley turning up all the kids sit down you'll be like i've put hours into this lesson because it's an ed tech lesson oh the ipads aren't charged right yeah can't do any of my any of the lessons they mike i think you had a question there well an anecdote and then a question. Yeah, I was going to say, I worked at a school where uh, we actually had one of the old black chalkboards that you could pull down and rotate around, and that was fitted on the wall. And on top of that, was there, was a, there was a whiteboard screwed on top of it. And then on top of the whiteboard, there was an interactive whiteboard screwed on top of that. And you could see some of the teachers just yearning to get rid of the top two and just go back to the blackboard so they could um, yeah. they could use that. Like and the, the interactive whiteboard is getting in the way, Arthur, and I know that will offend you because you absolutely adore interactive whiteboards. I love an interactive whiteboard. <laughs> that's because I was, I, I've never had anything different. So from well, that, that's my experience of the classroom. I've realised I've now turned into an old teacher because the other day I was using 
a projector and an interactive whiteboard and I was trying to show something on the screen and, and you know point it with my hand and every time I pointed it it skipped onto the next slide because the interactive whiteboard was actually working which is such a rarity in classrooms like you said Al normally they're just there as a, a very expensive whiteboard I think if you use it with purpose and that's and it doesn't matter how simple or complicated the technology is it's all about purpose and whether it's really there to add value or not I mean, I start to get a bit nervous because um, although I clearly look very youthful, I, I remember when that, that it was very much the rotating blackboard. One side had squares on it and one side was smooth. Um, I tend to remember more the piece of chalk whizzing across the classroom if someone was talking at the back, which is a whole different experience. But, you know, we we joke that 20 years ago in a classroom, you'd, you'd have teachers busy making all their notes on acetates ready to show on the overhead projector. And now we're using visualizers. Well, you know, things have moved a bit. It's not quite, let's write it all down on a sheet. Of, but the, there are some things where the, the intent of, I just want the children to see what I can see and use that as an easy and quick way to do things absolutely works in the same way as actually some of the most effective bits of technology at the front of the class. It's just a TV screen. As long as you can share what's on your laptop, tablet, whatever it is to that screen. Um, you know, for, for many classrooms now, again, you know, one of the big drivers is to to, to not have teacher, you know, tethered to the front of class to, to be able to get out there and move around the classroom. So it involves having a handheld device and it involves having some means of sharing your screen. We're moving from visual to, to audible now in the in the new AI era. So whereas at home we might have Alexa and Siri, you know, we're starting to see the Merlin Minds and other solutions appearing in the classroom to allow a teacher to interact and ask questions from anywhere in the classroom and devices to respond accordingly. And I think that evolution for me is what's exciting because when I start thinking about Audible, I start thinking about my children in an alternative provision setting and think, you know what, if I could be at a point where we would be allowed to have those learners take their GCSE with two two-hour, tell me everything you know about this subject, they'd get an awful lot more shared than they would do if they asked them to write it down. And when I think about the fact we've got some amazingly gifted learners in, in my map where it's, the stress of the exam is never going to work for them. And people say, well, you know what? People have got to learn. They've got to write. They've got to do these things. Pressure's good for them or whatever. And to be fair, there's not many people that say that anymore, thank goodness. But I always kind of come back full circle to... You know, we we have all these qualifications and the ones that really matter, I'll say it quietly in case any students are listening, ultimately will be that last point. And for many, that might be university. And, and we sort of say, when we're at university or college, we, we get three years, we get judged continuously through that with exam, with essays at the end of each term. And we get three years worth of scores with one slightly longer exam at the end of the third year and a dissertation. And we get a grade and we're quite happy for that assessment to be ongoing for a degree and we're quite happy for them to do it on a keyboard and to research independently and add to their work and that's something sufficient that we'll hang our hats on to allow someone to go and be a doctor or a scientist or whatever we want to be and yet when it comes to an A-level we couldn't possibly do that we now seem to think it's much better to make them just hold it all in their heads and, and have two two-hour sessions um, and it almost feels to me like we're trying to we're trying to push water uphill at this point here because so much of the digital technology now is is really changing to how long is it going to be before we use devices to actually enter our exams? Is the reason we don't do it 
because it's less effective or is it because we know it would mean we'd have to do an investment in schools to have sufficient technology for that to be fair to all examiners because one of these things that comes full circles on these conversations is what will our learners be doing when they leave school and go into the workplace what will the workplace be tasking them with and if you look at any of the surveys on the key skills that employers want right now you will find that the top 10 skills will include digital skills but will all be what were called soft skills and are now much more often referred to as power skills they will all be those key critical thinking skills digital skills effective questioning skills and so on the things that we're trying to build in our learners but almost by not recognizing the urgency of these new jobs the new workplace that we've got we really don't have the luxury to have a conversation in our schools about should we be doing more with technology in our classrooms should we be introducing it we don't have a choice the answer is how quickly can we get ourselves to a point where we can do it effectively because otherwise how can we possibly have a level playing field for children leaving our schools and at that point it starts to get a bit awkward if we're talking about digital poverty based on their educational experience rather than simply their socioeconomic situation because then it's the education system that's failing and that's that's on the government of the day for me so if we bring this full circle and we're talking kind of moving forward this the tech that is coming into education as you said it's not like is it going to happen it's kind of when it's going to happen let's say we've got some school leaders listening to the podcast who are saying like yeah i'm all on board with this like I, but i'm really struggling to kind of go out and see like why is this not working why is this not working with my students why why is these digital properties why don't they have the skills what's something practical they can do kind of in the short term whilst they're trying to get funding and trying to have those bigger conversations because i'm sure yep. there's people who want to do something what what can they do rather than just hoping it's all going to be good the first thing i would say and, and i mean it with complete respect and and, and i am of a of a slightly graying hair dispos disposition so I, I i can say this i hope for the, for the right reasons one of the biggest barriers to digital being high up the priority list in our schools is because often the senior leaders that need to make the decision to put it top of the priority list are talking about a subject that they do not have confidence in themselves and they do not have the practical experience of them using it themselves in the classroom because the technology is moving so quickly and it's much harder to be bold to say this is really important for our schools but actually it's something where I'm not going to be one of the experts in the room. I'm going to have to trust and delegate that down to, to middle leaders and below to actually let others run and lead with it. The second thing is when we talk about a digital strategy, do not assume that it means you have to have a big pot of money and you have to go out and buy loads of stuff. In fact, the most important part of a digital strategy is what do we already have and how effectively is it being used? And I guarantee you, you will find that the technology can be deployed in different parts of the schools. It can be rescheduled. More often than not, it will be about professional development to get more out of what you've got, not the need to go on a shopping spree. It's a folly to buy stuff until you've got the confidence to use it and understand and use it effectively. The next thing is, you know, for me, number one is always power of the PLN. There are so many schools doing amazing things, and there are just as many schools really struggling. It's not a competition. Use your PLN to go visit other schools. Look with a specific 
intent of what you're trying to achieve or where you see your priorities and learn from others you know there's there's great events up and down the country and events is a challenge at the moment because events equals time out of school and time out of school can be a real problem um it, time it, more so than cost even at the moment um but there are so many willing and able um educators there are so many great digital leads for different mats schools la's across the country that we share that i think it's always best to stop and look outside however in our haste to look outside sometimes at leadership we don't recognize that some of the new staff that have joined us in the last couple of years may well have already been in those schools joined us and nobody's actually asked them whether they've got experience of other technologies that they might like to share with us so don't forget to look from within, but don't assume. Technology is the one category. You know, it, it doesn't apply in many cases, but, it, but technology is absolutely one where experience and wisdom does not guarantee success. Some There are some amazing, very, very inexperienced teachers doing some great stuff with technology. And I think we need to just be really mindful that we're on a new horizon here. You know, I mean, if anybody says to you they're an expert on on, on using AI for effective questioning and resource planning, well, none of us have had more than a year of doing that with the tools because it hasn't been available. So it doesn't really matter whether you're frankly 20 or 65, you're probably going to be on a level playing field in terms of how to use the tech. Now, the bit about wisdom and purpose and impact, absolutely, that's where the experience dovetails in with it. Um, there's some brilliant resources out there. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I spend a lot of time getting involved, talking at events, chatting on podcasts with like good people like yourselves, sharing and connecting. But what I always find is if you get involved with a PLM, for every bit of wisdom you share, you will also learn something. So it, it just make the effort to connect with different groups and and learn. And also, you know, I love education because it, when I wear my commercial hat, and I have to sometimes, um, you know, when you've got a good idea, it's your intellectual property. You keep it a secret. It's, it's an advantage over the competition, for want of a better term. That's the way the business world works. In education, people love to share. That's why I, I love being in the education space. People will share their failures and their successes. And I think so reach out. I mean, I always say, if you're not sure and you've got something in digital, you want to know a school or a mat in your area or some really good people at the forefront um, in the in the UK or beyond, let me a message on any of the social platforms and I'll gladly do an introduction to somebody else that I know is a really good trusted source. Um, I've, I've written some guides. I've got a great free digital strategy guide that you can download. It's a starter for 10. It's probably got 20 or 30 different case studies from digital leaders around the world of how they shape their digital strategy. There are great guides on doing that. Uh, there are some really good resources available now, some short resources that are free or curated ones that will cost you a bit of money from different authors. If you want to find out more about AI and effective questioning or whether it's on digital citizenship and how do we actually make sure that in parallel to introducing technology, we're putting equal effort and purpose into keeping our kids safe and educated with the technology. Bill, that is a lovely way to round off our conversation now. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the pod. I feel like like I've got a lot of notes and I need to go away and kind of rethink about it. It's Mike, I saw a lot of nodding, a lot of thinking. There was some big moments there. Al, uh, you mentioned a couple of ways people get in contact with you, but have you got anything, any books that people can read, 
any websites they should go visit? Where can people find out more about you? Well, some might argue the books are better for colouring in than reading, but I'd like to think there's a few words of wisdoms in there. Um, I, I have a, a series of books. I call them a series because they all look quite similar on the front, just different colours. But um, I, you can find me on most online bookstores or bookshops if you want to find out about EdTech. I have my secret EdTech diary. It doesn't finish off by saying age 13 and three quarters, like eight and <laughs> um, I've also done the governance handbook, uh, a school and multi-academy trust growth guide, social media, Al Kingsley underscore edu on Twitter, um, Al Kingsley on LinkedIn, uh, EdTech Diary on Instagram, all over the place. Um, you know, I'm always up for connecting. I'm always looking to to learn from others schools um, and i'm very fortunate i know a, a lot of amazing people doing some amazing stuff in schools with technology so if i can be the connector between yourselves and them then i'm more than happy to and there's a great little newsletter that goes out on linkedin um that i follow and i also know when i said i was going to speak to you on the pod i had people coming on my linkedin being like oh my god i love that newsletter so at least we're going to have a couple of listeners mike um which is always good uh so out Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Team Teaching. Um, everyone else will be back in a moment. Welcome back to Team Teaching. What an amazing chat with Al, Arthur. Just, I mean, we we've talked to a lot of people about technology and education, but Al was coming in from that kind of high level whole school leadership strategic approach to it it was a really refreshing chat we had with him it was really nice to hear talk as you said talking about the really high level stuff but then really breaking it down and saying the great stuff that's happening is probably in the classroom next to you and you don't even know it's going on and i think we've all i've had that experience of walking into someone else's classroom and being like what are you doing this is awesome how did i not know this um and that kind of comes on to my like key takeaway mike he was talking um, like what do we already have in school and how do we use it? We don't have to go out and spend thousands of pounds on loads of new fancy tech because there is going to be great stuff in our school. We just need to find it and think about how we can use it elsewhere. So it's the maths department doing something awesome that the P department can get something from and having those conversations um, and forcing those conversations to happen um, is awesome. How about, how about you, Mike? What was your key takeaway? Yeah, mine's on those lines as well. It's like, it's amazing having pockets of technological excellence in your school. You need a whole school strategy. You need to come at this with a very careful and calculated approach in order to get the most out of those pockets and try and spread it across your school in a really organized way because staff come and go. Um, you know, if you lose two out of your three real superstars with technology one year, then you know you've gone backwards as a school so it's about how you can kind of harness that spread it across your school and then have it as a strategy that is ongoing and embedded in everything you do i think i i took that from out today yeah it's just one of those conversations i think there's stuff everyone at every level in the school can go away and have a think about what it means for them and their department and their school and most importantly their learners mike uh what a lovely chat what a lovely way to spend some time it was. Thank you to you, Alpha. Thank you to Al. And thank you to you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tea and Teaching. If you've enjoyed the content of this episode, 
please feel free to share it with other educators. And if you're able to, please leave a review on the platform. And as always, thank you for listening to Tea and Teaching.